The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Crafting the New Treatment Mix in CLL, Pharmacist Insights on Delivering Effective Care with Targeted Therapy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash XPM860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning, and welcome to uh, the symposium, Crafting the New Treatment Mix in CLL, Pharmacist Insights on Delivering Effective Care with Targeted Therapy. I'd like to welcome you. My name is Emily Dotson. Um, The other panelists with me are Dr. Peter Campbell and Dr. Sarah Stump. So just to dive into our targeted therapies, the current FDA approvals that we have include three BTK inhibitors, ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, zanabrutinib, and the BCL2 inhibitor venetoclax. These are all currently approved um, with the combination targets between BTKs and BCL2. There are two additional agents on the horizon, including pertubrutinib and nemtubrutinib. So I'd just like to call out a couple of things. Despite these novel therapies, we continue to have um, some challenges with this area. Um, There tends to be a bit of over-reliance in the chemoimmunotherapy um, setting um, based on a registry setting um, that looked at a variety of therapies across a number of years. In addition, we have a number of toxicities that are also related to these targeted agents that can be very challenging. So it's very important for us to be aware of those barriers and to be able to um, empower our patients to stick with their therapies. We know in the first-line setting and the relapsed refractory setting, there are a number of dose reductions, discontinuations, and dose holds that occur because of adverse events. The hematology-oncology management team, which consists of a variety of people, is important to take care of the patient. So we can see here we have the hematology-oncologist, an oncology nurse or an oncology nurse provider, um, global supportive care, which would, may include cardio-oncology. Um, it may also include supportive services um, for drug procurement, um, grant aid, um, and really helpful um, uh, financial aid services to help the medication get to, to the hands of the patient. In addition, the pharmacist plays an equally important role in terms of the treatment selection, medication counseling, reviewing drug-drug interactions, and procuring that drug at the time the patient can start. Uh, Long-term monitoring and follow-up plans, as well as adverse event management, um, and the provision of education across healthcare providers. So our goals today are to help you understand the mechanistic pharmacokinetic profiles and current evidence supporting um, BTK and BCL2 inhibitor approaches in CLL. We hope to equip you with the skills you need to develop pharmacist-informed management plans that include targeted therapies for treatment naive and in the relapsed refractory setting. Um, At the very end, we'll provide you with some collaborative guidance to address issues such as care coordination, um, drug interactions, patient counseling, staff education, safety, and dosing considerations. So with that, I'll turn it over to my colleague, Dr. Campbell, who will introduce BTK inhibitors. Thank you so much for that. So to get started, we're just going to take a quick look at some of the NCCN recommendations. And so on this first slide, what you'll see is the NCCN recommendations for treatment-naive CLL in those patients who do not have deletion 17P or TP53 mutations. The preferred regimens include our BTK inhibitors, plus or minus an anti-CD monoclonal antibody, and you'll see also venetoclax plus obinutuzumab in there as well, with a brutinib either alone or with an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody as an option as well. 
Now, if we move forward and we look at the same group, except those patients who have a deletion 17P or TP53 mutation, what you'll see is that you have very similar treatment regimens nowadays, whereas historically this may have been different, but these have aligned more and more over the recent years. Now, one of the great things about BTK inhibitors is that in this day and age, we have therapies that people can stay on for a long time. And so when we're looking at the data, one thing that we want to look at is the length of follow-up and what the overall response rates are over time. So you'll see pretty long length of follow-ups for both the Alliance, Elevate, and Sequoia trials, all of them being over two years in length from a medium, uh, median follow-up. If you look at efficacy, you see pretty remarkable results across all of these trials. So 76% for a brutinib, um, 84 and 72% for a calibrutinib, and then xanabrutinib also in the high 80s. So impressive results with long-term follow-up. Now, when we think about TKIs, one thing that we have to think of across the board is what is their mechanism of action and what are the off-site targets? The reason that this is important is because when we're looking at selectivity of these BTK inhibitors, or really all TKIs, that's where we start to think about what toxicities are these drugs going to be prone to have for patients. And so if you look at this to orient you, on the left, what you'll see is your covalent BTK inhibitors, abrutinib, acalabrutinib, and xanabrutinib. And what really differentiates them is that acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib are a bit more selective. And therefore, you'll see when we go through some of the toxicity profiles, they may be a little bit better tolerated. When you look at the non-covalent BTK inhibitors that we'll touch on briefly, you also see that they are more selective as well. And so hopefully this selectivity can help reduce the toxicity for the patients. So first, if we look at the Elevate trial, what you see is that when you look at AFib and a flutter, a very common side effect that we look for with BTK inhibitors, what you'll notice is that a calibrutinib being more selective as compared to a brutinib had lower rates of AFib or a flutter. Um, and what you see is that also those that had side effects leading to treatment discontinuation were lower with no patients in the acalabrutinib discontinuing because of cardiac side effects. So you can see a little bit more tolerated, especially for these high-profile side effects that we typically anticipate. Now, if you look further at some of the other toxicities that we commonly associate with BTK inhibitors, such as hypertension and bleeding events, you'd also see that acalabrutinib had lower rates of both of these toxicities as well, both for any grade and grade 3 or greater. Now, if we move to xanabrutinib and we take a look at the Alpine study, what you'll see is that there was also lower rates of AFib and A-flutter with xanabrutinib as compared to abrutinib. So if you look at this graph here, what you'll see is that over time, there's a pretty sustained difference in toxicities for AFib and A-flutter. And when you look at the rest of the toxicity profile from a cardiac standpoint, what you'll see is that, again, Toxicity from a cardiac standpoint that led to treatment discontinuation was lower with xanabrutinib as compared to abrutinib, and overall cardiac adverse events were lower in general. So this selectivity of BTK inhibitors in the real-life setting <laughs> results in less toxicities for most patients. And with that, I will now pass it over to Emily. Okay, so we know that um, as BTK inhibitors are utilized, um, there are a number of um, issues as patients start to progress on therapy. Um, and this brings about the non-covalent um, in, um, introduction into our, our talk. 
Um, so there's a challenge of BTK resistance that occurs. Um, ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, and zeanibrutinib all bind at the um, brutin tyrosine kinase. Um, and on this, there is a residue that is the cysteine-481 residue. Um, when this mutation occurs at the binding pocket, the medications are unable to bind. Therefore, that downstream impact causes progression of the disease. We have a number of agents that are being studied to overcome that resistance. Um, these are known as non-covalently bound BTK inhibitors. Two medications who are currently um, being reviewed are nemtibrutinib and pertibrutinib. Um, the targets for these are both BTK. However, the bonding type is reversible and non-covalent, which means that they are active in this mutation. So a few studies to review their impact. Um, so the Bruin update um, was a study that was looking at in the patients in the relapsed refractory setting. Um, patients overall were refractory to a BTK inhibitor and had pretreatment. Um, the overall response rate was 82.2% um, in this heavily treated um, patient population. The median progression-free survival you can see um, is about 19.6 months, and this was a durable efficacy that was seen across the board in the mutation status of the patients. In addition to this, there was a, another group of patients who were double exposed. So they had the BTK inhibitor exposure and they had a BCL2 inhibitor. Um, the overall response rate of this group was 79% um, and they were heavily treated. Um, the median prior lines of therapy was five. Um, the median um, uh, a duration of months was about 16.8. Additionally, pertubertinib um, has been associated with low um, rate of BTK-mediated adverse events. So at the very bottom, I'll draw your attention to um, some of the um, special interest adverse events that we see, um, specifically hypertension and AFib or A-flutter, um, as Pete had mentioned um, before. Um, so with that, um, you'll notice that the grades that are more than grade three or four um, are less than 3% for hypertension and AFib and A-flutter. Um, overall, the most common side effect that we're seeing with this is neutropenia. The other non-covalent BTK inhibitor is nemtibrutinib. So nemtibrutinib has also been effective in this heavily treated um, patient population. Um, the dosing schema for this is 65 milligrams, um, and the... Um, uh, table that I'd like to draw your attention to includes a number of patients um, from patients who had prior therapy with BTK inhibitors and BCL2 inhibitors and then mutational status. Um, and the overall response rate for this medication is 63% in the patients that had the mutation. And I'll turn it over to Sarah for our next. Thanks, Emily. Uh, so now that you guys have learned about the current status of BTK inhibitors, both covalent and non-covalent BTK inhibitors, we're going to move on uh, and shift our focus to BCL2 uh, inhibition with venetoclax. And we're also going to touch briefly on the combination therapy with BCL2 and BTK inhibitors. So first, I'd like to talk a little bit about venetoclax and where we've come over the last few years. Um, you saw when uh, Pete was presenting the NCCN guidelines that in addition to BTK inhibitors, venetoclax has a Category 1 recommendation for treatment-naive CLL and also has indication for relapsed refractory disease as well. And these approvals came from two major studies. Uh, the first uh, one I'd like to talk about is CLL-14. This was a Phase 3 study in treatment-naive patients. They were older and unfit. Um, so they were unfit for chemoimmunotherapy, which, believe it or not, at the time was still standard of care um, for these patients. So they were unfit for chemoimmunotherapy. Um, and this 
study was comparing obinutuzumab, so Gaziva, so the G on this slide, plus chlorambucil, or obinutuzumab plus venetoclax. And this was building on the CLL11 study, which came just before, which established that obinutuzumab and chlorambucil were superior to both chlorambucil alone and rituximab plus chlorambucil. So the CLL14 study, like I said, was basically trying to um, establish the the um, place in therapy for venetoclax in treatment-naive patients. And what we saw in CLL4 team is that we had a much, much uh, better progression-free survival with the combination of venetoclax and obinutuzumab compared to chlorambucil and obinutuzumab. The estimated five-year progression-free survival was 63% um, for venetoclax arm and about 27% for the chlorambucil arm. So this was definitely practice-changing. Um, it actually came after Murano, the second study we're going to talk about. So it was able to move from the relapse refractory setting up into the treatment-naive population. So again, category one recommendation for venetoclax combined with obinutuzumab based on CLL-14. Um, fixed duration venetoclax um, also has a role in relapse refractory CLL, and that was based on the Murano study. Um, so this was another phase three study that combined venetoclax with an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody, in this case was rituximab, and compared that to BR, bendamustine rituximab, in patients that had been pretreated, mostly with chemoimmunotherapy. And in this study, we saw very similar results, um, a major improvement in progression-free survival with venetoclax rituximab compared to BR. The median PFS was about 55 or 54 months with VenR versus 17 months for BR, and that was statistically significant. And, and again, this was practice-changing at the time um, and allowed venetoclax to gain another FDA-approved indication for relapse refractory disease. Um, so venetoclax has had an interesting sort of progression in the... Um, CLL modern era, so it achieved its first FDA-approved indication in 2016 as monotherapy, which you can see is not even on this slide. Um, it's sort of been supplanted with um, combination therapies with anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies. So if we're treating someone who is treatment-naive, um, the option is venetoclax with obinutuzumab, and then for patients that may have been pretreated with something else and progress in the relapse refractory setting, we would be using venetoclax in combination with rituximab based on the Murano study. An important thing to point out about both of these trials is that these regimens were fixed duration. So when we talk about BTK inhibitors, we're talking about indefinite continuous therapy until progression or unacceptable toxicity. But in these studies, this was a fixed duration therapy. So patients got six months of anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody and then concurrent um, venetoclax um, with a duration of one to two years based on the study. So this was huge for patients and with CLL. Um, and it allowed us to have another option other than BTK inhibitors for patients who may not want to be on a medication long term. So now that we've talked about the established role of venetoclax, both in treatment-naive and relapse refractory CLL, I want to touch briefly on the data we have that's coming out for fixed-duration combinations between BTK inhibitors and BCL2 inhibition with venetoclax. And the first study I want to talk about is Captivate. So this was a phase two study combining fixed-duration abrutinib with venetoclax in treatment-naive CLL. And this study showed very, very impressive overall response rates. About 96% of patients um, had a response to this combination, including patients with high-risk features. So we see that the outcomes of complete response, partial response, um, are basically the same between patients without DEL17P and those with DEL17P or mutated TP53. So very, very impressive results with this study. 
Um, and we also saw durable responses, clinically meaningful PFS and treatment-free remissions in this patient population. Because of this study, we now have a phase three study, GLOW, um, which is similar. It's fixed duration, ibrutinib plus venetoclax. Um, it actually does have an, in, um, an approval in the EU for patients with treatment-naive CLL. And I'll tell you kind of where we are in the US about this combination in a second. But first, I want to tell you about some safety with the combination between BTK inhibition and BCL2 inhibition. They had a median follow-up in the study of about 28 months, so pretty good um, duration of follow-up. And basically, we saw that neutropenia was the most common grade 3 adverse event when you combine abrutinib with venetoclax. Um, really manageable rates of hypertension and cardiac toxicities with the combination. Um, Adverse events led to dose reductions in really, uh, again, a manageable number of patients, 6% for um, ibrutinib reductions, 11% for venetoclax dose reductions, and then 4% of patients um, for both drugs. So our take-home from from this study, the Captivate study, was that combinations appear to be highly effective, um, but we do have some toxicities we have to worry about. And then the other thing I'd like to point out is that the phase three study, GLOW, that's ongoing, is combining this with uh, chlorambucil. So I think in the modern era of CLL, we've kind of all agreed um, that that is maybe not the best comparator arm. So I think there's still a lot of questions that we have about combining these drugs up front. In addition to our brutinib, we do have some data with second generation and more selective BTK in inhibitors. So this is actually a triplet regimen, time-limited Acala, venetoclax, and obinutuzumab in treatment-naive patients. Um, this is a phase two study, and again, we see really, really impressive overall response rate. It approaches 100% um, in this study. Um, it is very, very effective, 98% overall response rate by cycle 16. And one thing that we see in these newer studies is MRD-guided durations of therapy. So one of the things we worry about, especially in TP53 mutated patients that get venetoclax, is that their duration of response may not be adequate. Um, and one way that we're working to overcome that is use MRD-guided durations of therapy. So you'll see this being a component of a lot of these studies of combinations up front. So in this study, um, patient, 83% of patients with TP53 mutations were able to achieve undetectable MRD in the bone marrow after 15 cycles. So this was really, really impressive. Um, and we know that MRD um, translates to longer progression-free survival in patients that receive venetoclax. So this is really exciting. Um, low rates of cardiac and infectious toxicities were observed in this trial. Um, but again, we don't know at this point that the combination or the sum is better than the sum of its parts. Um, so more to come with that. And then again, second generation BTK inhibitor, we do have data for combining that with the venetoclax um, as well. So this is an arm of Sequoia. This was a large study of zanubrutinib, and one of their arms, arm D, combines zanubrutinib with venetoclax. And again, patients with high-risk features, so DEL17P. Um, very, very small numbers in this arm of the study, but impressive overall response rates of about 97%. So very exciting um, combinations are emerging with BTK inhibitors and BCL2 inhibition with venetoclax. Um, but unfortunately, at the current moment, we're not really sure, again, that the whole is better than the sum of its parts. So if you give all of these drugs up front, do we actually extend survival um, compared to when we would give them sequentially? So I think more to come. We have to make sure we design the studies to answer that question. And with that, I'd like to pass it back to Pete to talk more about some pharmacy-specific uh, information. All right. <clears throat> Thank you for that. So 
Now we're talking about dosing adverse events and drug interactions. So we're at this point now, we have a lot of drugs in our regimen that we can use. They all work really, really well. But the thing, especially as pharmacists, that we need to start thinking about is what are the side effect profiles of these drugs? How do we give them and what other considerations do we need to be thinking about? And so this slide is just a general overview of some of the most common side effects that we can expect with both the BTK inhibitors and with venetoclax. So you'll see Starting with the BTK inhibitors, very typical things that we anticipate were the cardiac effects, such as hypertension and AFib. You can also see bleeding. You have to monitor for infections. And less common is arthralgias. When you're moving over to venetoclax, you have a very different toxicity profile. First and foremost, I think at the top of everyone's minds is going to be TLS. That's something that we're very acutely aware of. You can also see GI events. And then infections and myelosuppression become a risk in certain patients. So just to briefly go over the dosing of the covalent BTK inhibitors in the CLL population specifically, I won't go through all of this, but you can see here is a reference that's available for you from abrutinib, acalabrutinib, and xanabrutinib. And then the other thing also to note is what the different dosage forms that they come available in is something to be aware of. And then also knowing the once versus twice daily options. So abrutinib is once a day which is convenient for patients. Acalabrutinib being twice daily will pose some issues for patients. Um, and xanabrutinib has both a twice daily and a once daily option, which makes it also convenient. So one thing that I think we all have to be acutely aware of, no matter whether you're a physician, a pharmacist, an NP, is the drug-drug interactions that all of these drugs carry. So I think when I talk to residents or students about um, TKIs or BTK inhibitors, it's drug interactions, drug interactions, drug interactions. It's something that you need to think about all the time. And so you'll see here that all of these drugs have interactions with CYP3A4, and they have a various number of ways in which you can handle them. So abrutinib, if you're using a strong 3A4 inhibitor, you'd want to reduce the dose, or if it's only going to be for a short period of time, you can think about interrupting the dosing for less than a week or so. Acalabrutinib, you'd want to try to avoid it if at all possible. And xanabrutinib, you'd reduce to 80 milligrams once a day. Now, the other thing that I think you have to keep in mind, um, going back to the duration of therapy, you'll see that a lot of the strong 3A4 inhibitors that these patients end up on are long-term therapies. Very infrequently is it that you're putting someone on a strong 3A4 inhibitor for a handful of days. You have to keep this in mind because over time, you know, these are going to become permanent drug interactions if you're putting them on, say, an azol antifungal for a prolonged period of time. The other thing to keep in mind as well is when you're using CYP3A4 inducers, which generally you'd want to avoid with these BTK inhibitors. And then the last thing to think about is uh, gastric acid reducing agents. So now we don't really have to consider this as much anymore with the newer formulations that we have, while historically this was an issue. So for other safety considerations, we'll start with abrutinib. So bleeding is something that I think we all have at the top of our minds, was drilled into us when we first learned about abrutinib. Um, you want to think about for patients who are undergoing any sort of major or minor procedure, holding it for different lengths of time, so say three days for a minor procedure, a week prior for any larger procedure. Infections are something you'll want to think about. The cardiac events that we've talked about with all of these agents, um, hypertension and cytopenias, which you want to check blood counts monthly in these patients. Now, you'll see as we go over the next two slides, there's a lot of similarities between uh, acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib. So you still see some of these cardiac uh, side effects, although they're less frequent than we saw with abrutinib as we've gone over with some of the previous data. 
And the thing that sets it apart is we'll say with a calibrutinib, headaches can occur in these patients, which is a bit of a unique toxicity compared to the other agents. They usually occur early on in therapy and within the first one to two months are self-limiting. And you can also manage it in most patients with acetaminophen or caffeine supplementation. Now, when you switch over to xanabrutinib, you'll notice the top portion of the slide is the same because we still worry about those cardiac side effects as well as infections and bleeding. But the thing that's a little bit different with xanabrutinib that becomes a little bit more prevalent is the neutropenia that you see. With neutropenia, what we typically do to manage this is with the first occurrence, you would just interrupt the dose and wait for the patient's counts to recover. Once it gets to grade one or baseline, you can resume at 160 milligrams twice a day or 320 milligrams once daily. It gets a little bit more complicated once you have repeat occurrences of neutropenia and you have to think about further dose reductions or the potential to switch to a different agent. Now, when we look at our non-covalent agents, such as pertubrutinib, what you'll see, granted, this is based on the MCL labeling and some of the experience in CLL, but the dosing is 200 milligrams once daily for MCL, but this is also what's being used in the Bruin study. You want to monitor patients for arrhythmias, infections, bleeding, and cytopenias, the typical class effects that so far we've talked about with the BTK inhibitors. Also carry some of those same drug interactions where you want to think about avoiding use, if possible, with CYP3A4 strong inhibitors. Now, shifting a little bit, when we go over to venetoclax, you know, we talked about tumor lysis syndrome, and that's part of the driver behind why we have such an interesting dosing scheme with venetoclax when we first start it. So you, I think a lot of people are probably accustomed to ramping up the dose in these patients. And so you'll notice that while ultimately you're looking to get to 400 milligrams once daily, you have to do that slowly in most patients ramping them up to avoid the tumor lysis syndrome. So you'll see in week one, you would start at 20 milligrams once a day and then go up to 50 milligrams, 100 and 200 over the subsequent four weeks. You also wanna think about dose reductions for these patients if they're on strong CYP3A4 inhibitors. And the one thing that I would note is if a patient is on a strong 3A4 inhibitor at baseline, you're going to approach your dose ramp up a little bit more differently. So you'll notice here it says after ramp up 100 milligrams once daily, there are different treatment strategies that you can use, whereas you can do a slow ramp up and cap it at 100 milligrams. I think that's probably the approach that most people would take rather than ramping them up to 400 milligrams and then putting them on the strong 3A4 inhibitor and dropping them back down to 100, which is not as logical of an approach, especially because a lot of these patients are on the strong 3A4 inhibitors for a prolonged duration. Now, TLS is at the top of our minds with venetoclax. And so when you're thinking about venetoclax, the first thing you have to do is risk assess the patient. So you have to determine whether they're high or low risk for tumor lysis syndrome, because that's going to differentiate how you manage them, especially whether you do this as an outpatient or you admit them to do a dose escalation as an inpatient. It can also influence whether or not you do more of a rapid escalation, which some institutions have started to do as an approach, so that you don't have to prolong hospitalizations or prolong the dose escalation over the full uh, four to five week period. So what you'll want to think about is telling patients what to watch for, for hyperuricemia symptoms. So nausea and vomiting, shortness of breath, clouding of the urine, joint discomfort. It's important to counsel patients on these things because if they're doing this dose escalation at home, they're going to be the ones who notice these effects before anyone else. And they're going to have to let you know, because that's when you want to bring them in for evaluation. And the other thing to keep in mind, I'll draw your attention to the box in the lower left, 
It's really important to take a very close look at patients from a risk assessment standpoint, because even though we saw really high rates of tumor lysis in clinical trials, remember that a lot of patients that are in clinical trials are more of your pristine patients. They have the better renal function. And so the real world population may be at an even increased risk of tumor lysis compared to what we saw in the clinical trials. And so that's why it's really important that we just take a really close look when you're first assessing them and deciding how you're going to do your dose escalation strategy. Now, if we look at the early experience with the brutinib and venetoclax together, what we can think about is, okay, we now have multiple drugs that work really well. Is tumor lysis uh, going to be even more of a risk? Well, it turns out that when you're using this combination together, if you do a lead-in debulking with a brutinib, you can actually reduce the, the severity of TLS in these patients. So what you can see here is three cycles of single agent of brutinib prior to initiating the combination therapy. Um, re significantly reduced the risk and severity of TLS in these patients. So this lead-in strategy is pretty effective in debulking patients so that when you initiate the venetoclax, they don't have as much tumor lysis. So other things to keep in mind is neutropenia with venetoclax. So you'll want to think about managing with dose interruptions or reductions, similar to what we talked about before. For grade three or greater, this is when you want to think about using GCSF or antibiotics for either neutropenic fever prophylaxis or in the event of an actual infection. So for the first occurrence, you would interrupt treatment, and when it returns to grade one or baseline, resume at the same dose. And then for the second occurrence, you'd want to interrupt treatment and then resume at a lower dose. And I think that you have to think about the severity and depth of neutropenia that the patient experiences when you're deciding what, you're, what dose you're resuming at. So sometimes people will do a dose decrease from 400 to 300. If you have a patient who has more severe neutropenia or more prolonged, you may want to consider going from, say, 400 down to 200. And remember, you can always go back up if the patient tolerates it. And with that, I will pass it back over to Emily. Thank you, Pete. Okay, so now we're going to dive into a few cases um, to really explore the role of the pharmacist in this setting. So our first case is regarding choosing upfront therapy. <clears throat> so we have Melissa, who is a 59-year-old patient presenting with symptomatic, higher-risk, treatment-naive CLL. Um, she has a good performance status, and she has unmutated IGHV and a complex karyotype. She does have renal insufficiency. Her creatinine clearance is provided, as well as a past medical history of atrial fibrillation and hypertension. Um, so this first case I'll, I'll post to Pete um, in terms of a physician recommending a continuous BTK inhibitor for this patient. Um, what steps should we consider as a pharmacist? Sure. So I think that this is a patient where uh, an upfront BTK inhibitor makes a lot of sense. But so there's a handful of things before we even think about which BTK inhibitor are we going to choose. So the things that we'd want to make sure that you have is knowing the patient's whole past medical history, knowing all of the medications that they're on that's going to come in key when you're looking at drug-drug interactions. Um, also, pharmacists play a huge role in um, patient access, patient support in, act, in terms of actually obtaining the drug. Um, now, when you're actually choosing the BTK inhibitor, you know, we're thinking right now of a brutinib, a calbrutinib, and xanabrutinib. When we look at uh, Melissa's past medical history, we see that she has a history of atrial fibrillation and hypertension. And so in a patient that already has an underlying cardiac history, 
I think this is the perfect scenario in which you would want to potentially move away from a Brutinib. And I think you'd be more inclined in this situation to use Xanabrutinib or Calabrutinib in this patient um, rather than giving the patient a drug like a Brutinib when you already know that they have a history of AFib. Makes sense. Um, so just to kind of tie in some of that information, um, as we're looking at drug interactions um, for this patient and really trying to consider some of the pharmacokinetic considerations, I'd like to call your attention to some of the metabolism that we see with the BTK inhibitors. Um, so we would um, be looking at um, medications that were hepatically metabolized, um, specifically through the um, CYP3A4 enzyme system and 2D6. Um, and so just to kind of recap what Pete mentioned, um, looking at those medications is very important, thinking about those comorbidities that Melissa has, as well as discussing some of the patient dosing and the safety profiles with her. Um, so given her risk factor of atrial fibrillation and cardiovascular risk factor of hypertension, um, a second-generation BTK inhibitor, a calibrutinib or xanabrutinib, is recommended for this patient. Um, so now she has started on her therapy, and we are fast-forwarding about three years. So she has now progressed on her um, treatment, and um, she was on a covalent BTK inhibitor prior to this. So our next question is, if it's a fixed-duration venetoclax rituximab that is her next step, as far as a recommendation, what are the next steps? And I'll pose this question to Sarah. Yeah, so I think this is um, definitely a real-life scenario where a patient got BTK up front. They've progressed now after three years of treatment, um, and venetoclax rituximab makes a lot of sense. We have FDA-approved indication um, for this type of patient, um, so it makes sense. Um, similar to uh, Pete's case, starting on a new medication, obviously the medication list is important. I'm sure her meds have changed in three years, so I want to know what she's taking now. Um, we still have to worry about drug-drug interactions when we think about venetoclax as well. Um, obviously, for uh, venetoclax, we've kind of harped on this a little bit, but tumor lysis risk assessment is important. Um, so a couple things I want to know. One is her absolute lymphocyte count and how bulky is her disease. So those are the main two components that go into our risk assessment. Um, so we don't have that information pro provided to us. So that'd be something I'd be looking for. Um, and then the other thing that's interesting um, is her renal insufficiency. So I'd like to know how that has changed over the last three years as well. Um, renal insufficiency and the creatinine clearance is not part of the risk assessment per se and the package labeling. Um, but what we've seen with a lot of real world TLS studies is that elderly patients or those with renal insufficiency may be more likely to experience tumor lysis syndrome, um, which kind of makes sense. So it'd be interesting um, uh, to know what her what her kidneys are doing now um, and what sort of risk assessment she would be into. So um, based on whether she were high risk or low risk for TLS, um, we would either admit her um, or do this as an outpatient. So at our institution, we ramp up all venetoclax as an outpatient. Um, so I would prepare the patient for that. There is a little bit of patient buy-in you have to get when you're asking them to come in once a week for ramp ups. Um, for high risk patients, you would actually check labs the next day as well. So day one and two, eight and nine, 15 and 16 and so on. So um, I would you know, need to spend a little bit of time talking through those uh, logistics with her. Um, the other thing that's exciting to tell this patient is that this is a fixed duration treatment, which is unlike her first line therapy. So whereas when we counseled her on BTK inhibitor, this was an, uh, you know, 
an infinite <laughs> outlook. Fixed duration venetoclax rituximab should be exciting to a patient, hopefully, that they get to um, see the end, end of the tunnel early on. So I'll be talking about drug interactions, TLS risk assessment, um, and then just the logistics of the therapy. Yeah, I, I would just add one thing in that. I think in terms of counseling, you hit on a really good point in getting patient buy-in because when you're doing this as an outpatient, the one really important thing from a TLS standpoint is that the patient maintains hydration, which can be very hard to get patients to commit to. I know how many people in this room have probably had seven cups of coffee and no water today. And so that's going to be the same case in your patients that you have to convince them to make sure that they adhere to these things like staying hydrated. A great point. Um, so, really trying to dive into stratifying the appropriate patients for inpatient and outpatient and talking through that care coordination um, for the venetoclax rituximab combination. Um, that toxicity and the logistics may be a bit different um, in this time frame um, for the relapse refractory setting um, versus if the patient would have had a fixed duration with venetoclax and gazeva um, uh, uh, or obinutuzumab. So our second case um, is the role of the pharmacist in um, adverse events. So David is a 70-year-old patient with symptomatic CLL. He has unmutated IGHV, and he has been receiving treatment with a covalent BTK inhibitor. Um, so it's about four months um, on therapy, and he is now experiencing painful arthralgias that are grade two in severity. Um, so kind of back to Pete, what strategies should be considered for this event? Yeah, so arthralgias are an interesting toxicity with the BGK inhibitors because I think you run across people who will say, I've never seen this. Then you'll run across people who say, oh, you see this all the time. Um, but it's something that for patients, it, they really feel it. And if you're suffering from arthralgias, you feel it every day. Um, you wake up with painful joints, et cetera. And so, you know, I think that the first thing that you want to think about is how can you treat the arthralgias? And you want to look at this at both the short term and the long term. When you first start thinking about it in the short term, you want to think about, can you use acetaminophen in these patients? Would you use an NSAID? I think a lot of us would probably shy away from using NSAIDs, given the bleeding risk that's prevalent with the BTK inhibitors. And I think this is something that you need to have a conversation with patients about because people are all too uh, likely to self-medicate and take you know, NSAIDs for prolonged periods of time without telling anyone, and they're really setting themselves up um, for a potential bleeding risk. And so um, I think in the short run, what you can do is you can give them supportive care with medications. But then you also want to think about, especially with a brutinib, there's some data to show, would you benefit from a dose reduction or a dose holiday? Um, in some patients, uh, you can stop the drug for a period of time, the arthralgias will resolve, and when you reinitiate the drug, they don't recur. If they do recur after a dose holiday, you would want to then think about dose reduction or potentially switching to another BTK inhibitor or another therapy altogether, depending on how severe it is for the patient. Great. Um, so just extra information um, between those general recommendations, as Pete mentioned, um, you know, avoiding um, NSAIDs due to that bleeding risk, um, and then really isolating if the patient is on ibrutinib, those um, extra details in terms of dose holding. Um, and it is very different from each BTK inhibitor, so really trying to make it um, patient-specific. 
So some take-home points. Um, so regardless of line of therapy, uh, collaborative discussions are necessary for the development of a comprehensive treatment plan. Um, the pharmacist can play a real, really crucial role in chart reviews at various times in the patient's history. Um, we know that hypertension management may be necessary. Uh, medication list updates, um, as Sarah alluded to, as patients are on treatment, it's important to ask what their updates are with each visit, as well as looking at their refills and making sure that those are on time. Um, and then when adverse events occur, a strategy and a plan um, is helpful in terms of compliance, making sure the patient feels supported, um, whether they need a dose hold um, or therapy change, and making sure that um, that compliance is ongoing. So revisiting back to our second case, um, David is now um, um, progressed. It's been four years of therapy. Um, just as a reminder, his initial treatment was that covalent BTK inhibitor, um, and he has been um, treated with Ven-R, um, but progression um, occurred two years after the end of treatment. So the question now is how can pharmacists help prepare for patients for this next step in, in treatment and really trying to figure out um, what's needed? Um, Sarah, do you have experience with this? Yeah, so again, I think in the modern era, this is um, coming up more and more where patients have now been exposed to both BTK inhibitors and BCL2 inhib inhibition and unfortunately have progression. So um, the first thing that comes to my mind is um, can we find a clinical trial that's appropriate for this patient? Um, that is, I think, always going to be where we go for double exposed patients. Um, there's a lot of options out there. So we've talked a little bit about non-covalent BTK inhibitors, which for now are not FDA approved. Um, we can be successful in getting, um, getting PERTO off-label. So that potentially could be a possibility um, for getting a non-covalent off-label for this patient. Um, we do have some information about retreatment. So this patient got venetoclax rituximab in the relapse refractory setting, um, completed the fixed duration therapy, and progressed two years later. So there is some data for venetoclax retreatment, uh, meaning you go back and you repeat a venetoclax anti-CD20 uh, combination therapy. Um, those studies are small in number, um, but pretty good impressive results if you had an initial response to therapy. And then the other thing I would be thinking about, which we kind of alluded to earlier, is if you pursue retreatment, um, perhaps doing that on a clinical trial so we get MRD-guided duration um, of therapy for this patient. So we have a few options. We have some off-label options. Um, I always am wondering what clinical trial options we have for patients. And then we do have some emerging data on retreating patients with fixed duration venetoclax after progression. Great. Um, so in this setting um, where patients have that double exposure, thinking about um, some of the data that was presented earlier with the Bruin um, trial, um, and then thinking about even the Venry treatment um, and making sure that um, patients, if they are um, able to enroll in a clinical trial, um, you know, that can be different from institution to institution, but if that's available, um, really honing in on um, the inclusion for that patient. So our third case um, is preparing for a BTK inhibitor combination with venetoclax. Um, so George is a 70-year-old patient. Um, he has symptomatic CLL. Um, he is fit. And he has no major um, comorbid illnesses. Um, he has unmutated IGHV, and he has no TP3, P, TP53 mutation. Um, so what are the pharmacist's responsibilities um, if this patient is to receive a fixed-duration BTK inhibitor um, with the combination of, of venetoclax? Um, so Pete, Sarah, any thoughts here? I think that there's a lot of things you need to think about here. I think first and foremost, the thing that would come to mind is toxicity when you're talking about using a BTK inhibitor and venetoclax, especially increased risk of neutropenia. 
um, is something that comes to mind and you need to have close monitoring of these patients, at least initially. Um, because, you know, when we're talking about adding all of these different treatment regimens, yes, there's really good outcomes, but the toxicities seem to be additive. Um, the other thing to think about too is that when you're adding these therapies together, you're also talking probably about financial toxicity for some patients, you know, where each of these drugs individually tends to be expensive, but now you're talking about multiple oral agents and um, high copays. This could potentially start to snowball. And so I think patients need to be prepared for that. Yeah, absolutely. I think one one other thing that I'm thinking about just talking to the patient themselves is um, logistics again. So when we combine BTK inhibitors with venetoclax, we're usually doing the BTK inhibitor lead-in. So usually patients um, get two to three cycles, two to three months of BTK inhibitor monotherapy. Um, and we do see that that is an effective debulking strategy like Pete showed earlier. So if someone were high risk for TLS at baseline, these studies actually give us the luxury of reassessing their TLS risk. We don't do this in clinical practice a lot after you give a few doses of obinutuzumab. We're not repeating CT scans or like seeing how big their, their nodes are. We're just doing a physical exam. Um, but in this case, we're debulking a lot of these patients with BTK inhibitor monotherapy. So when I initiate venetoclax, you know, I might be a little bit less concerned maybe about um, tumor lysis syndrome. So that's helpful uh, maybe for this patient who's a little older. We don't have, um, you know, all of his labs and what his renal function is, but we presume it's probably pretty good if he's fit with no major comorbidities. Um, but that's another thing I just want to be thinking about for combination therapy is how's that going to look with the lead-in of abrutinib, making sure the patient tolerates abrutinib and gets through those first few months before we then add in another therapy with unique toxicities um, and counseling points. Yeah, I think lastly, compliance also can start to become an issue. I, I know, you know, there's plenty of studies across the entire pharmacy spectrum that shows that compliance can be pretty poor regardless of what drug you're talking about. And, you know, the benefit in a fixed duration is that you're not talking about forever, um, but these are multiple medications that could have side effects and you really need to harp on patients that compliance is really important, especially, you know, depending on which BTK inhibitor you're talking about, the dosing schemes are different. Um, and so it can be a little bit more complex than just taking one oral therapy and compliance should be something you talk to patients about. Great, great information. Um, specifically, um, you know, even thinking about that these are two oral medications, um, we've talked a lot about those combinations where patients are coming into the hospital. Um, and so keeping in mind that oral therapies keep patients out of the hospital, but it's equally important to um, have those phone call follow-ups, um, making sure patients are aware of all of the counseling um, that they need in terms of starting this treatment. So another polling question on safety and drug interaction is on your iPads. And then just some final take homes. Um, so oral targeted therapies, you know, looking at alone or in combination um, are largely supplanting chemoimmunotherapy in the treatment of newly diagnosed and refractory CLL. Um, we have emerging data that supports a role for non-covalent BTK inhibitors, as well as some time-limited combination therapies. Um, and that's more in the future management of CLL. Um, we feel like pharmacists are uniquely equipped for adverse event monitoring. Um, some of the tools that we've described in terms of of managing arthralgias, um, patient support, and education in creating individualized therapy plans um, for patients that are both receiving BTK inhibitors and BCL2 inhibitors or those in combination. So with that, we will take some questions. We do have microphones um, around the room. Um, also, your iPads um, should be able to push some questions through to us, um, and we'll check and see what we have. So one good question that we have um, is, 
do you modify the ibrutinib dose when combining with venetoclax? Um, the answer is no. The, the target dose of ibrutinib is still the same. Like I mentioned, there is a lead-in. So you would start on 420 milligrams of ibrutinib for two to three cycles, depending on which study um, you're looking at. Um, so we do the same dose, same ramp up for venetoclax, 20, 50, 100, 200, and then 400. Um, so same dosing strategies. We just use that debulking lead-in before we start the ven ramp up. Yeah, I think another question that uh, is pertinent because it comes up a lot is the role for antimicrobial prophylaxis when using venetoclax. Um, I think that this is something that you have to look at each individual patient and assess their risk for neutropenia, the incidence of neutropenia. Um, you know, in a lot of patients, if they do experience neutropenia, it will be periodic where they won't you know, have prolonged neutropenia throughout the entire course of being on venetoclax. And so maybe for those select periods of time, you would think about putting them on antimicrobial prophylaxis. But I think what I would generally avoid is just putting people on antimicrobial pro prophylaxis throughout the entire duration of venetoclax therapy, which could be a very long time. Um, you know, these are patients who are going to get infections over the course of time. Uh, you probably want to decrease their systematic exposure to antibiotics as much as you can. And there's probably really not a need for just continuous antimicrobial prophylaxis. So think about saving it only for when they actually become neutropenic. Yeah. This was a, a good question. Just practically, um, have acalabrutinib capsules been fully discontinued? And for patients who have been on capsules, can you immediately transition to the newly, uh, the newly available formulation of tablets? This is huge because acalabrutinib used to be available only in capsule form, which interacted with um, acid suppressants. So patients could not be on a proton pump inhibitor and be on acala, which actually really changed how we looked at patients um, for you know, treatment-naive upfront therapy if they were on a PPI. Now we have tablets available for acalabrutinib that don't have that same interaction. Um, so capsules are being phased out. Um, I think the last time I asked our specialty pharmacy, we still had some capsules laying around. So be careful um, before you put someone on and, and know what your pharmacy is sending them. Um, but this is, this is really good advancement in just formulation. So it's really important to keep in mind, now we can put patients on a calibrutinib that are taking proton pump inhibitors because we can give them tablets. And you can immediately change over. There's no need to, you know, wait. Great. Another question coming in about um, the first step in managing AFib on ibrutinib. Um, try to treat it first, or do we switch agents? Um, so if this is a newly diagnosed atrial fibrillation, um, those are quite tricky. You have to think about a couple of things um, in terms of whether or not they also require some anticoagulation because of the new diagnosis. Um, and so really weighing the risk versus benefit of what um, type of supportive care agents they may need um, to be on, um, as well as drug interaction. So um, keeping in mind, when you start um, some of these agents, they do interact um, with the BTK inhibitors. Um, but that first step ideally would be finding an agent that would help control the atrial fibrillation. Um, I will say um, we are very quick um, to switch if something is an interaction um, or we feel like there is that excessive um, bleeding component um, or bleeding risk um, when we're adding an anticoagulation to treatment. Um, so keeping in mind um, if you can keep patients on therapy and support them, um, but also potentially have those um, dose adjustments when needed for drug interactions, um, or alternatively, if that's not possible, going ahead and switching the patient. Um, I think another question that's really interesting is, uh, historically, there's a lot of patients who can't tolerate CLL therapy. Do you run into that with these new options? Um, certainly, there are patients who can't tolerate various therapies, but I think maybe the big take-home point of this entire presentation is that we have moved past the era of chemoimmunotherapy. And when we think about patients not being able to tolerate 
therapies in CLL, that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about giving chemoimmunotherapy and how rough it was for a lot of patients. Now, you know, we don't just have a BTK inhibitor. We have multiple BTK inhibitors. And I think that while a lot of patients tolerate most of these drugs in the event that you do need to switch, you have a lot of different treatment options. So I think it's very rare, if not at all, that you'd run across a patient anymore that you don't have treatment options from a tolerability standpoint. You can always move them between BTK inhibitors based on different toxicity profiles, and they're used in so many different combinations now that I think you have a lot of different treatment strategies. Yeah. And even before we had second gen BTK inhibitors, you know, we had a lot of success dose reducing abrutinib and having really long term um, progression free survival. So I think uh, we have the luxury of new agents and new options, but the old school is also great. Um, we actually were talking about this question earlier, so I do want to just kind of bring it up. Have you ever give, given venetoclax obin in relapse refractory instead of venar? Um, I actually asked, we were interested in each other's answers to this question. So obviously that would be off-label because the obinutuzumab is approved upfront. Um, but if you give BTK inhibitor upfront and now you've relapsed, most physicians are going to want obinutuzumab. They're going to want ven um, obin, in, even though it's relapse refractory. So we do talk to payers um, about that, and we sometimes have to sort of support our, our rationale. But for the most part, we have had good success getting ven obin, even in the relapse refractory setting. Occasionally, we have some um, some barriers where we would have to use ven R, but that is a question that comes up a ton in clinic. Mm-hmm. In particular, those patients that may not necessarily have tolerated that rituximab component, um, we may need to switch um, to a different monoclonal antibody. Um, Another question um, that is um, uh, on here is in terms of follow-up. So, you know, how often should we be monitoring patients when they are on a continuous BTK? Um, So early on when they start, um, a lot of patients um, are receiving um, care through um, maybe telephone follow-up, and we have patients come in for their labs um, to make sure that we're monitoring those as they start. Um, You know, and that's really unique with BTK inhibitor that we see the lymphocytosis that occurs, um, and counseling patients when they get those labs back is equally important to make sure that, you know, they're not um, caught off guard when they see that rise um, in the white blood cell count. So, Keeping that um, upfront um, monitoring a little bit more close um, is important. And then as patients are on treatment, typically you can span that out to, um, you know, every three to six months, depending on how often their follow-up is specifically for their disease. Um, But a lot of those toxicities um, do dissipate over time. Um, There are a few, um, such as hypertension with ibrutinib, that can be more of a sustained adverse event. Yeah, and I think this is where you really drive home the importance of telehealth, being able to get local labs if you're a large referral center and your patients may live, you know, 100, 150 miles away. They're not trekking to see you every month probably. And so having the ability to get local labs, see them via telehealth is really important. Um, I think maybe we have time for one more question. Uh, I think, uh, could you comment on the role of mutation testing in patients responding to therapy and if progression is suspected? I think that this is an interesting question because with our newer agents um, specifically targeting different mutations, this is something that I think will become more prevalent, but I'm not really sure at this point in time right now because a lot of these drugs are being used in a clinical trial setting, how realistic it is in the normal non-clinical trial patients to be doing mutation testing. I'm wondering if you guys have any additional thoughts on that. I would say, I would, I would agree. I don't think it's happening routinely um, in most practices. Um, the reality is if you progress on BTK inhibitor, you would likely be thinking about non-covalent options um, anyway. So I don't think that this is 
currently standard of care. It would it would be done at large academic centers that have trials open um, and are looking at this. Um, we have some interesting data coming out about specific mutations, specifically with venetoclax. Um, you know, we see that maybe patients with high-risk features and certain mutations don't have durable responses to venetoclax. So we're learning a lot more about that, but I don't, wouldn't say that it's currently part of our standard of care. Um, we are doing some testing, you know, at a year mark, um, just to kind of do a, a pulse check um, to see um, where patients might be in terms of their mutational status. Um, there's some data to support that patients may not necessarily progress um, as soon as they have that mutation. Um, so really trying to hone in on what the next step might be um, and thinking through that it potentially would be you know, a number of months down the line um, before that mutation really plays a role in the progression. Um, so um, I would say that's really the, the biggest um, driving factor um, for that mutation testing is really that planning of what might be necessarily in the future for the patient. The other plug, just for when we're talking about mutation testing and being standard of care, is, again, just MRD testing as well. So you're going to be seeing that being done in large centers, maybe that have lots of trials open, or maybe the patient's on a clinical trial and they're using MRD-guided durations of therapy. Um, but unfortunately, I think that's we're not at a place where that's going to be routinely applied to most settings. Great. Yeah. Um, one of uh, another question um, on the threshold for dose modifications um, that you might have for a BTK inhibitor in terms of adverse events um, before deciding to change therapy. Um, so in practice, um, you know, dose reducing um, the package insert does reflect a number of dose adjustments that you can do over time. Typically, if you're getting into that um, second or third dose adjustment um, and thinking through that the patient may not necessarily be tolerating it, um, that's really um, the point at which we might switch therapy. Um, the other thing to think about is um, if you're dose modifying for something that is a acute adverse event or something that really um, will contribute to more long-term quality, um, those are really times where I think about, um, is this really in the best interest of the patient to change um, therapy. Um, but of course, trying that dose modification up front, um, especially for that first or second um, uh, adverse event um, occurrence can definitely help the patient. Um, there is some data about even dose holidays in certain situations where stopping therapy and restarting may even um, be beneficial. Um. A uh, question on how do you manage AEs with non-covalent versus covalent BTK inhibitors? Um, I think this is an interesting question because I think of it in a little bit of a different light, whereas I think your toxicities with covalent and non-covalent is used more for driving your treatment decision a little bit more than how you actually manage it. So I'd say, you know, if I'm thinking about it, I don't necessarily manage hypertension in a patient differently based on which BTK inhibitor they're on, but that may be the basis for why I'm choosing the therapy, why I'm choosing a covalent versus a non-covalent. Um, you can see they definitely have different toxicity profiles across the spectrum based on the selectivity, as we talked about. Um, but I think that the toxicity profiles of each individual drug probably drives your treatment decision a little bit more than being unique in terms of how you actually manage it when it manifests itself. Thank you guys so much for coming. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash XPM 860. 
This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Beijing, Pharmacyclics LLC, and AbbVie Company, and Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC and Lilly.